Well, we want to welcome you as visitors to uh, Redemption Community Church. We are thankful that you're here today. Uh, it's a special day for us as well uh, because uh, Tristan is uh, a dear uh, friend of ours, and we have watched him these last eight years uh, show a dedication uh, to the Lord growing in him and a faith in him that has become evident. So now he will display that today in believer's baptism. And so we're thankful for that. And I've decided that we're going to baptize Tristan next week too, so you guys can come back. All right? So you know a little bit about um, our church. I, I am one of the elders here. I'm the teaching elder. And um, we teach and preach uh, expositionally. And if you're not familiar with that term, we preach through verse-by-verse -verse, uh, books of the Bible. And so it's another special day for us today because we are concluding our study of the, book, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you've never studied those books together, uh, you definitely should because that's how they were written. They were written as one book. They tell one story about the Jewish people. And they have great application for us as God's people in the church. So as we kind of um, journey into this sermon today, I want you guys to understand where we've been. I, I, I kind of relate this. I knew there were going to be a lot of visitors today. Thank you for sitting on each side of the, of the room so that the middle seems really empty. Um, but I knew you guys were going to be here, so I, I've prepared a way to kind of catch us up. You guys are like children on a, on a long trip that sleep the whole way and, and, and then arrive at the end and be like, what did I miss? Okay. I can't fill you in on all the things that we've learned, but I'm going to try to summarize the best that I can so that you can understand these amazing books of Ezra and Nehemiah and how important they are for us as God's people, okay? To begin with, the, the, the kind of the series that we called this was Living as Exiles for Our Faithful God. And the reason that we call it that is because as Christians, the Bible says we are exiles. We don't belong to this world. It's not our home. We are longing for a home that is perfect in the presence of Christ without sin and death and sadness. It's full of joy and the glory of the Lord. And so we don't belong here. And so we are roaming around like nomads trying to reflect the glory of God in the church in just a small way compared to what heaven will be like. And so I know this sounds kind of strange, but if you've ever seen a healthy church, you've seen a glimpse of the glory of the Lord in that church with God's people. Now, unhealthy churches, not so much, all right? And so we, um, we want to be a, a healthy church that's learning and, and growing together in God's word. And as exiles... We know that we are dependent upon our liberator, our rescuer, who is the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so I titled this, uh, Living Exec as Exiles for Our Faithful God, because we are called as God's people to be faithful in our time of exile until the Lord Jesus re 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 returns or comes again to this earth. Well, in the same way, that's a, the way in which our story in Nehemiah, in Ezra and Nehemiah, kind of lays, lays out. Because we're all familiar with the story of Moses and the Exodus, right? The ten plagues, the, the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, all of those things. That's called the Exodus, where the people of Israel were liberated by Moses from captivity in Egypt. We know that story. It's a Sunday school story. It's pretty popular. What we don't know is that Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the second exodus. Because once again, because of sin and sinfulness, the, the people of, of Israel were in captivity again. They had gotten themselves stuck back in the mud in their sinfulness and their disobedience to the Lord. And so once again, they found themselves as captives, not of Egypt, but of Babylon. And God sends a liberator to come and rescue them and bring them back to their promised land in Jerusalem. And so they would call that the second exodus. And there was a great uh, 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 way in which God brought that about. So let me very, very quickly, if you're taking notes today, 
you're going to see a lot of dates up there, but I just want you to understand the basics, okay? God sent the people of Israel back to Jerusalem in three different groups or three waves of people. The first wave went with a man named Zerubbabel. The high priest's name was Jeshua. They traveled back and their, uh, their role and their purpose was to go back and rebuild the temple. The temple had been sacked and destroyed by the Babylonians. And if you know anything about the Jewish people, the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. It was the most sacred building to them, not because the, the stones were holy, not because the mortar was holy, because what was in, the, in between there, the presence of God, the Lord himself, would descend and meet with them there. And you have to imagine that that we can't even comprehend such a building in our lives. If you've ever been to the White House, you may consider that a great building, but it's not a sacred building. It's definitely not a holy building. This was the temple where the, the presence of the Lord dwelt, so they would go back and they would have to build the temple. Why? Because they were worshiping at the temple. And so the first wave went back with Zerubbabel. They, they rebuilt the foundations. They rebuilt the temple and just as a side note, after the first wave went, that's when you have the story of Esther. Historical note there. That's when the story of Esther, an, an exiled woman, a Jewish woman there, also experiencing faithfulness by God's grace and His providence. The second wave went back with a man named Ezra. That's where the book of, of or the, the middle of Ezra starts. So Ezra chapter 1 is the first wave, and then Ezra chapter 7 begins the second wave of Jews. And their, their job was to reestablish the worship in that temple that was rebuilt. And you can imagine the celebration after being in captivity over 70 years in the Babylonian world. Cast out from their home, not able to worship in the temple that they loved and, 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 and cared for so much with the presence of the Lord. They were separate from the Lord, you could say, in a sense. So the second wave with Ezra, and then the final wave begins in Nehemiah chapter 1. And Nehemiah and his task was to go and to lead the people back to secure the city. You can't have a, a temple that's... Um, populated and, and, and where worship exists when it's in a city that is still run down, it's still been destroyed by your enemies, and there are still neighboring enemies that want to attack. And, and so there was a sense of security that needed to happen. And so Nehemiah went back as the governor to bring about the rebuilding efforts of the walls and the city itself so they would be repopulated and the worship would commence. And that's exactly what happened. And we're at the very end, Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, as a side note, at the end of the celebration, which we as a church looked at last week in Nehemiah chapter 12, you'll also find interesting that it's assumed that the book of Malachi was written after the end of between Nehemiah chapter 12 and Nehemiah chapter 13. That's what, this is why that's important. Because the books of Malachi and Nehemiah are the final word to Israel. That's it. For 400 years before Jesus Christ coming onto the scene, the people of Israel had no prophet, they had no word from the Lord, and you'll understand why during this sermon. So between Nehemiah chapter 12 and Nehemiah chapter 13, we will learn today that Nehemiah leaves the city of Jerusalem and he travels back to the capital of Persia because he was cupbearer to the king. And during his time away, which is an undisclosed and unknown time, the people of Israel fall back into sin once again. Now I want us to stop there for a minute. Because if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today, you're going to relate to the the efforts of Nehemiah, as you have journeyed alongside people in your life that have constantly fallen into sin. They have constantly navigated their own lives back to the same reoccurring problems over and over again. Now, we as Christians 
all do that in some respect. But you have a person in your mind that you know exactly who I'm talking about. That you have tried to steer for them. And they always return back to the wrong direction. They'd rather go off-road than paved roads on the way toward God and His obedience and His love. And I know how weary that is. I know how difficult that is. Personally. Intimately. The prayers and the struggle. And so if that's you today, I want you to find encouragement from Nehemiah and not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Because as the title of my sermon said, we can find strength in doing good in the Lord. We find our strength from Him. And if you're not a believer today, if you're the person that so-and-so's praying for you, that's sitting in this building today, and they are laboring and praying for you because you are the one that constantly steers their vessel in every direction besides the direction of the Lord, and you just happen to be here today because Jeremy or Tristan or Angela invited you, then this message is for you as well. Because you will see... That just like the people of Israel, until you surrender yourself to Christ, you will always be off-road. You will always be absent of forgiveness and love. And you will live a life of despair and agony because you are trying to control a life that you do not own. And it does not belong to you. So let's jump into it, folks. As we begin, I want to first look at Four things that Nehemiah discovers, I'm going to say four unholy offenses against God that Nehemiah discovers as he goes back to Jerusalem to the people that he was leading and governing. First one is an unholy dwelling. The Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And then it was found, written, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now stop right there. Understand that the word of God... The, the, the Jewish people were relearning the word. Seventy years, an entire generation almost, that, that they had been separated from Jerusalem. They had neglected the word of God. And so they are relearning all these things. And one of the things that they relearned was that Israel had a stance. It had a disclaimer that no Moabite people or no Ammonite people were to partake in the worship of the Lord at the temple. You ask why? Well, because the Bible clearly tells us in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23, and I'm not going to take us there, but the Moabites and the Ammonites were two of the most sworn enemies of Israel throughout their time. They were were unkind to the Jewish people. They, at one point, as they were traveling to the promised land, they, they, they sent their magicians or their seers out to curse the people of Israel. And there was a contention between Israel and the Moabites and the Ammonites throughout their history. Starting at, back in, with Abraham and Lot, if you know that story. That's where the, the nations of, of Ammon and Moab came from. Born in sin, sworn enemies of Israel. And so, as Israel in Nehemiah's day are learning the word of God, they learn that no Moabite or Ammonite should ever enter into the assembly of God. Well, guess what's happened? As Nehemiah journeyed back to Persia, Eliashib, who is the high priest in that time, he makes alliances with the sworn enemies of God. He has literally committed national treason by forming an alliance. And and such an alliance that he allows the enemy of God by the name of Tobiah to move into a room in the temple courts. 
They moved out sacred items. They moved out con- con- contributions and offerings. And, they, and, they, and, he, and there he places in that room in the temple, completely foregoing and ignoring the word of God, an enemy of Israel. And of course they read this and they're, they're appalled. Look at verse 4. Nehemiah says, now before this, before they read the word, Elisha the priest was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a chamber, a large chamber, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Elishab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, that sounds unreasonable to some people. Why can't you... you Open up your home and be hospitable. Why can't a man like Tobiah live in the house of God? Because if you read the Old Testament, one of the the, the key themes that you come away with it, it's one word, separation. Separation. We, God, the Lord continually instilled in the people a separation between the holy things and the unholy things. Literally within the temple where the presence of God dwelt, there was a curtain, a large curtain. The people of Israel could not even go through that curtain or they would be destroyed by the very wrath and glory of God. And that curtain represented the separation between holy and unholy things. So Tobiah living in the temple was not being unreasonable. It was being reminded that God does not dwell with evil. He does not want to dwell with evil. And here you have the religious leader of that day, the high priest, making alliances with the the enemies of God. So one of the offenses was an unholy offense against God. We'll return back there in a second. The second thing that he discovered was an unholy neglect. An unholy neglect. Look down in verse 10. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had to flee each to his own field. Numbers chapter 18 tells us that the Lord promised Aaron and the Levites and those who served in the temple a portion of the contributions that came in. The animals that were sacrificed on the altar, whatever was left and not burned up, the priests and the Levites and those who worked in the temple could enjoy the food that was sacrificed and burnt on the altar. A portion of the giving that was given, they would give grain and they would give food as offerings. Those who served in the temple could enjoy that. When, and when Nehemiah leaves for a time back to Persia and returns, he tells us that out of, out of a sense of greed and neglect... The leadership of Israel had stopped allowing the Levites, as it says, they had not been given the portions due to them, commanded to them by God. And so what did the Levites and the singers do? They had to literally leave so they could survive. They didn't work outside the temple. They had no other means of providing for themselves besides what was given in a portion of that. And so they literally had to stop their service stop their their act of worship for the Lord, and leave so that they could survive and feed themselves in their own fields. An unholy neglect. An unholy dwelling, an unholy neglect. Thirdly, an unholy rest. Look in verse 15. He still says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Sabbath day in this culture, but you can understand a little bit of it when you, if you were able to think back 50 years in American culture when nothing was open on Sunday. 
when you understood that stores were not going to be open and sports teams were not going to be playing and there was not going to be a way. Matter of fact, you literally had to prepare for Sunday on Saturday because there would be no bread and there would be no milk. And, and Christians did that in this culture to honor the Lord. To rest not on the Sabbath day, but on the Lord's day. It's not so much the culture today. Well, the Jewish people were commanded to not work on the Sabbath. Their Sabbath was a Saturday. And the reason why was because it was a commandment of faith. We've, we studied this and, and this continued to be a violation, not only in the Old Testament, but even in Jesus' day. God told them to rest on the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest was necessary for a lot of different reasons. Number one, because it reminded them who was truly the Lord. Who are you truly trusting in if you take a whole day off of work and, and don't earn any income? Who are you really trusting in when all the tradesmen and all the commerce floods into Jerusalem, ready to do deals and, and give you great uh, items to, to sell and barter and trade, and you literally don't answer the knock on the door and say, I'm not working today. In our culture, again, we can't understand that because we literally take Saturdays and Sundays and maybe in the future, Fridays off. If politicians have their ways and corporations have their ways. So we don't quite understand an agricultural culture that says we have to work every day to feed our family and, and harvest the crops and do everything that's necessary. So for the Jewish people to literally stop working on one day was truly showing a faith that God was going to provide all their needs. And I think we can relate to that, right? Putting down the laptop, turning off the vehicle, not going into the office, knowing that God has put in our possession things and responsibilities that are greater than a, a workplace and a paycheck. And understanding that when we do those things and we, we turn off the laptop and we close down the email and we say, I'm not going to work anymore today because I want to be, I want to honor the things that the Lord has given me and do the things that he's commanded me to do. And I'm going to trust that, the God, that God's going to provide for my needs if I don't work an extra three or four hours today. But here they are. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. And what are they doing? They're working on the Sabbath. Pressing the wine, or the grapes for wine. Loading up heaps of grain. Doing all that, that they were told not to do, and, and Nehemiah warns them. And in verse 16 it says, Tyrians also who lived in that city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah. And the people of Judah went out and, re and received such a trade. They were guilty of violating the commands of God and not resting, not showing faith trusting in the Lord. And finally, unholy marriage. Unholy marriage. You can kind of see the flow of this passage grammatically because he keeps saying, in those days, in those days. And in verse 23, he says it again. In those days also I took, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each of his people. Again, carrying the theme of separation, God wanted Israel to marry Israelites. And he's not a, he's not a racist God, he's not a biased God, he's not a, a prejudicial God. He's a God who knew by his sovereign wisdom and grace, that if the, the people of Israel went and married people of other nations, they would fall so in love with those people that they would worship the God of those nations. And that's exactly what Israel did. They syncretized the, the, the Jewish faith with the, the faith of Babylon and the faith uh, of the Philistines and the faith of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they would constantly synchronize and they'll say, we'll do a little bit of this worship and we'll do a little bit of this worship. And it makes everybody happy. But it doesn't make the Lord happy because he says, worship the one true God and him alone. That's what he demands. Calling all other gods, not lesser gods, not, not subservient gods, he calls them false gods. 
And in the same respect and in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, comes into the world. And in the same way, he doesn't say, worship whom you please. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, so he commanded the people of Israel, if you marry foreign women, you will worship their gods. And that's exactly what had happened over and over again, even through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, between celebrations of all God's faithfulness and his providential work and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls, they, these leaders of, of Israel, and they continue to find the people falling into this particular sin of unholy marriage. And why is that so important to us today? Because it shows us the weight of sin, the gripping effect of sin that can grab a hold of us. We have that gospel time in our service each week because we, we acknowledge that sin is striking. God's grace is bigger. Christ's work is sufficient. But sin is still a struggle. And as you struggle with sin, we come together as sin strugglers saying, Man, we understand the struggle that you went through this week because we went through the same struggle. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we need him. And if it wasn't for what Jesus did, we'd be in big trouble. So, unholy offenses in this passage that Nehemiah, unholy dwelling, neglect, rest, and marriage. Now we're going to go back because I want us to see Nehemiah's faithfulness in dealing with this sin. So secondly, we're going to look at the faithful acts, of God, uh, faithful acts for God. Carried about by Nehemiah in this final chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Number one, faithful acts for God require confrontation. Confrontation. Three of the four times the word... I confronted is written in the text. I confronted, verse 11, I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to the sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. The truth of the word is, is that, that God calls us, in the midst of doing good for his name, to confront. If God's called us to be faithful believers in Jesus, and in our faithfulness we are surrounded not only by sin in the outside world, but we are relationally connected to sinners. And as the family of God in the church, we are called to participate in the sanctification or the growing up of each other biblically. In other words, you are not on an island as a follower of Jesus. You have a family of faith that walks alongside you and guides you and helps you in your walk with Christ until the end. If that's not for you, the church won't be for you. And please, if, if I could just plead with you, because I don't know your, your story and I don't know your situation, but if you are a person that has decided to go to a church that's so large that you can hide in the back corner so nobody knows your name and nobody holds you accountable and nobody challenges you with scripture, let me encourage you to find some accountability in that church. You need it. Let me tell you right now, I need to be confronted in my sin. Not only in my, from, from my wife, but from my brother elders that work with me and serve here, from my church members, because I'm not standing up here on my high horse saying that I haven't sinned in the same way that you have sinned. We need confrontation. But the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that you who are spiritual should help restore other people who have fallen into sin. 
So not only is my responsibility to receive confrontation in sin, but my responsibility is to go to my brother or sister and say, I love you, and out of the love of Jesus Christ and the truth that he proclaims, you are in sin, friend. And it's sad to me. It's sad to me that I have seen news articles and reports on TV where people have gone to the news and said, can you believe that they are, they're smearing my name at my church because I had done certain things and they came to me and told me and they told other people that I had done these things? And I laugh with a grin and say, that's exactly what the church should do. That's love. It's not love, church, to look at your family and friends swimming in sin and, and unrighteousness and say nothing. That's not true love. True love is to confront them. Do it with gentleness. Do it with kindness. Nehemiah was willing to confront. Why? Because sin does not dwell in the presence of the Lord and to honor the Lord to understand a right relationship with the Lord, we have to turn from sin. And Nehemiah was weary and he was broken and, and he was so fed up with seeing this that, that he wasn't going to sit by idly as a good leader of God's people. He confronted their sin faithfully. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, which again, if you don't go to a church that quotes Charles Spurgeon, you need to find another church. He writes, when a brother falls into sin, it's too often the habit to push him down, to cast him out and forget, forget him. But spiritually minded persons must not do so. We must seek the restoration of the brother. Is there not more joy over the sheep that was lost than those that did not go astray? He says, do not... Do we not have the best reason to deal tenderly with wanderers since we might need the same generous office for ourselves? So we're not talking about Bible bashing, but we are talking about intentionally loving confrontation when our brothers and sisters in Christ fall into sin. This is the encouragement that we see from the Scriptures in the life of Nehemiah. But it doesn't just start with confrontation or stop with confrontation. Because we're going to see in Nehemiah's life that it moves beyond confrontation. It moves to change. See, oftentimes we're willing to say words and bring up things, but then we kind of leave the rest to the person in their struggles. In other words, you might have the disposition that it's not hard for you to confront someone in their failures. But again, lovingly, confrontation is really a commitment not just to expose what's wrong, but a commitment to walk forward in that situation, loving them through the difficult times. Caring for them, guiding them according to the Word of God. A drive-by confrontation is unbiblical confrontation. But instead, find your place in that person's life to love them through. Maybe it leads to them accepting Christ and acknowledging a, a lack of understanding of the true gospel. But by all means, we can't give up on these people that are our loved ones. We must lead from confrontation to change. Nehemiah doesn't just confront. He brings to change. In the unholy dwelling in the temple, the change was pretty obvious. He takes the furniture out of the chambers, throws it out, moves the sacred things back into the, the chamber, and runs Tobiah off as an enemy of God. That's pretty simple. It may sound harsh to an unbelieving world, but when we acknowledge that God does not want unholiness in His very enemies dwelling in His presence, we can understand that in the relationship with us and sin in our lives. God doesn't want sin to dwell within you. Confess it. Trust in Christ's forgiveness and turn away from it. Jesus one time said that if your, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking very clearly, deal with your sin in a very harsh way. 
Because it can lead to your death and separation from God. So the change with Tobiah was kicking him out. And the second thing with the, the, un, uh, the, the neglect of the Levites in verse 11, Nehemiah confronts them. And then he gathers the people together. He sets people, the Levites, back in their respected stations. He brings the tithe back into the storehouses. And he even takes the, the, uh, the leadership position of appointing honest treasurers over the storehouses that would be, as the Bible says, considered reliable. That's what a leader does. He doesn't just say, guys, things need to change. Peace out. He says, guys, things need to change, and here's how they're going to happen. Because leaders of God's people are initiators of change. Thirdly, the change that he brings with the Sabbath is a very similar separation theme. He rebukes the people for profaning the Sabbath day in verse 17. <clears throat> what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, he says? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. You know, sometimes when we confront people, we need to give evidence and examples as how destructive that life might be. And Israel was a great case study of what sin does and how it destroys. So he reappoints um, the, the or, or re rebukes on the Sabbath. He warns them about it. And he even goes so far as to go to the city gates and all those, those uh, nations that had gathered to, to come and do commerce. He shuts the gates. He doesn't let them in. And then he tells them at the gates, he says, get out of here. You have no business doing trade on this holy day of the Sabbath day. And then finally, he calls out the unfaithful or unholy marriages. And his words are very striking and, and necessary. He says in verse 25, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, here's another example, did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and yet he was beloved, and yet beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying these former, former women? And in verse 28 and 29, he even gives an example of the high priest's grandson, Jehoiada, who literally had been married to a woman from another nation who was the son in, and made him the son-in-law of one of the sworn enemies of, of Israel. And Nehemiah says, I just chased him away. That's how I dealt with it. Separation, separation, separation. Faithful confrontation requires change. So let me encourage you, as the Lord leads and steers you to bring about some change in the life of yourself or others, understand that as believers in Jesus, he may send someone into your path that will confront you. And as we've said, it will be in love. But what you need is, is, a, is a holy confrontation that includes relationship. So that the change happens as someone walks alongside you, guiding you according to what God's Word says, teaching you what it says. And when that confrontation comes, my prayer is that you would receive that with love. And you would receive that with grace. And if you are the one who would confront, let me encourage you to be equipped with the tools necessary to confront. 
It's our tendencies in this culture to gather upon ourselves our own self-righteousness. And so when you go to confront someone on their sin and, and you are seeking to restore that brother or sister, my prayer is that you would not consider their restoration built upon how good or of a person you might think you are. It's not about that. The tools that you take with you is the Word of God who has a standard, a perfect standard, a holy standard, a righteous standard that none of us live up to. This is the whole reason why all of our conversations point back to Jesus. Because when the Bible tells us, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and you see someone living in sin, and you know they need confronting, and you know that change can happen, then you point them to Jesus who brings about change. And the reason why is because when you lay out God's word, the law of God, and it begins to prick the heart, and it begins to expose sin you're going to come to a really quick realization that you're never going to measure up with the perfection that God has for us. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be holy enough. You're never going to obey enough. And so you're, you're in a quandary in a sense until you realize that Jesus was perfect for you. Jesus Christ came into the world, lived a perfect life. The Bible that, that Adam read earlier, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He obeyed it in every way. So the burden is not upon you to live a perfect life. Jesus lived it for you. And because he lived a perfect life and he was the sinless son of God, both 100% God and man, he was able to go to the cross and he was able to give his life as a sacrifice so that if you put your trust in him, the wrath of God, the Bible says, passes over you and rests upon him. So your belief in Jesus is a belief that all the sin debt that you've accrued and all the unrighteousness that you've committed can be washed away by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, by the way as a trailer to the baptism today, is exactly what's symbolized in baptism. Tristan has submitted himself for baptism because he acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his only way of escape is not his goodness, it's not his faithfulness to this church or any church on the planet, that the only escape that he has is putting his trust fully in Jesus to save him from his sin. Because Jesus was enough. Jesus accomplished everything that was needed. Jesus did all that was possible so that Tristan can rest fully. That in the moment he goes into the water, he's not saved. He's already been saved. The water symbolizes going into the grave just as Jesus did for sinners like us. And rising victoriously out of the water, rising victoriously out of the grave, Jesus defeats sin and death giving us hope, giving us victory over sin, so that when we confront people, we point them to Jesus, and we confront them in the strength that Jesus gives us. Which leads me to my final point, and I know you're thinking, man, I don't ever go to a church that someone preaches for an hour. We do at this church. If you want to be faithful to the Lord as a believer in Jesus Christ, it requires that we confront, it requires that we bring change, that we initiate change, that we walk gracefully with people, and finally, that it, just, it requires that we depend on Christ. Terry read this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn there. It's a, it's a wonderful passage. It reminds us that our strength's not for us. It reminds us our strength's not built upon our good deeds. We are good because of God's strength, the Lord's strength. And so Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor. Who does the armor belong to? It's the armor of God that you may, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That confrontation that needs to happen in the lives of your life or your friends or family, you will understand that passage. 
The schemes of the devil literally means the entrapments of the devil. They are entrapped. They are ensnared. They are literally tied to a tree with their leg in a vice that they can't escape. And they enjoy it because that's what sin does. It allows us to somehow enjoy such a terrible state. And Paul continues, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day. And having done all this, to stand firm. I want to encourage you, as I close today, to trust in Christ, to depend upon Him. If you are a weary exile who is like Nehemiah, seeking to live and do good in this world, and you are constantly bombarded with the successes of the evil one, the successes of, of, of corrupt, unrighteous people, and you begin to lose faith and, and doubt the things that God is doing. Let me encourage you, friend, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. Be faithful and steadfast. Going back to the book of Nehemiah, this was his call to the Lord three times in verse 14. In verse 22, and in the final verse 31, the same phrase he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Verse 22, Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah is crying out in dependence in the Lord. Trusting in Him. Trusting that God will empower Him and strengthen Him to continue on. And it's, it's literally sprinkled in between these passages in a sense of prayer, of weariness over these sinful Jewish people. You feel that way? Man, I do. You serve in ministry. You serve in your community. You serve in your school and your workplace. And if you stand for the cause of Christ and the things which Christ has called us to do and ways in which we live, you will face the temptation to be weary in doing good. And in that temptation, you will choose one of two paths. You will begin to fall into the world's schemes, the devil's schemes, or you will stand firm and in do so be bombarded and need to be reminded, stand firm. Be steadfast. Be immovable in the work of the Lord. Find your strength and put on the whole armor of the Lord. Don't lose heart and don't lose sight. Be faithful till the end. And that's what God has called us to do. And He will give us strength. He will strengthen you. God will use you to faithfully bring about His purposes and His plans. Our church knows that God used a pagan king from Persia to begin this whole process in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's his providence. That's his sovereignty. If you serve the Lord, the God of the Bible, you serve a God that rules over all presidents and rulers and kings. That can do all things without even thinking clearly in our minds. He is moving and working in ways we can't even imagine. So we have every reason to trust Him and know that He will empower us to do His will. And when we're afraid, as Adam read earlier, when we're afraid, we will put our trust not in ourselves because we don't even understand ourselves according to Jeremiah. Our heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. But we can trust Him. And His Word is our guide. It's our strength. And He will encourage us. And He will comfort us. And He will strengthen us by His Word and His Spirit and by followers of Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, this is my confrontation for you. Don't leave this building today without trusting in Jesus. He is your only escape. He is your only hope. And the Bible tells us that you may think that you know better, 
But one day when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So whether you realize it or not, one day you will confess Jesus as Lord, but it will not be for your salvation. It will be for your judgment. Let's pray. Father, by your grace and your power, we thank you that we can even call upon your sweet name. That we can even understand your word and you would, by your mercy, give us some mind and some intellect to know such things about you. Thank you for allowing us as a church to study through the book, books of Ezra and Nehemiah and to be reminded every week that you are a steadfast, faithful, covenant-keeping, loving God. That we have no reason to fear or be afraid. And Lord, I know that there are people here in this room today that are weary travelers. They are like the Jewish people. They are exiles that realize that they don't belong in this land and they are weary and doing good. And so, Father, may you comfort them with these words today. Comfort them in the confrontation and the change that they need to bring about in the lives of people that they love. God, help us to see that in your providence, you bring about these things through faithfulness in your people. And God, in the end, we know that no matter what we do and how we are involved, you will get the glory because it's by your power and might that change comes about. And Father, we pray for those here today that They know Tristan and they love Tristan, but they don't love you. They don't serve you. They're unwilling to forsake the sin in their lives because they want to be in control. And I pray, Father, today, God, that you would move in such a mighty way that you would help them see that there is no escape from the wrath of God. There is no escape from his judgment. And only by Christ and only trusting in him fully and completely can they be free. And that there is a joy in following Jesus. And that there is a a blessing in calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. And so, Father, I pray that by your power and your might and for your glory, you would save many today. We pray these things in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.